Okay, I'm Ian Gordon, I'm chairing. It's my pleasure to introduce Paul Cheshire, to those of you who don't know him. Uh, Paul is an economic geography professor in the department, probably more relevant to this uh, for a long period of time, some of this in association alongside Alan Evans. He's been somebody pioneer in the economics of planning. Uh, I think his attitude to planners can be described as critical friendship. Uh, in fact, he's now extending this privilege to architects. So, ironic uh, designs, dead weight loss, uh, from trophy architects, whatever. Thanks so much, Ian. Thank you. Uh, just note, this uh, is uh, based on a discussion paper, a CERC discussion paper that has just come out, and as I'll explain to uh, Ian, uh, actually, I only finished these slides about 20 minutes ago, so there may be some mistakes in them. Um, anyway, here's a sort of a question for discussion over a pint. Now, why does the incidence of tall buildings vary to such an extraordinary extent across the cities of the world? Uh, Sao Paulo has half as many skyscrapers per person as New York does, but nearly twice as many of high-rise buildings. That's buildings over 35 Beaters. Uh, anyone know why that is? Nobody knows why that is. Well, they've got, they've got uh, quite regulatory restrictions for very tall buildings in Sao Paulo, but they're very liberal with respect to tall buildings, and there's an incredibly high crime rate in Sao Paulo, and it's a very big, sprawling city, as most of some of you may know. So, actually, there's economies of scale for security in having <coughs> high-rise apartment blocks. So, middle-class and upper-middle-class people tend to live in relatively tall apartment blocks with heavy security on the front door. Uh, and the very rich live with such blocks with helicopter pads on the roof. Um, Brisbane, a sort of fairly provincial city, I have to say, in Australia. I don't think Australians here will be offended by that. Six times as many skyscrapers per person. Skyscrapers are more than 100 metres tall. Uh, compared to Paris... Uh, eight times as many per London, from, per, compared to London, from which you immediately see London doesn't have very many per person. Now, topping, this is a really good for a pub quiz night. What city in the world has the most tall buildings per person? I've asked this of lots of my urbanist friends. No one's come here. They all say Hong Kong or New York. New York actually is certainly very far. It's Benidorm. Benidorm in Spain. Uh, uh, here you are, it's got uh, 384 tall uh, skyscrapers per uh, 100 million, uh, per pop million population, compared to Chicago, 111, or London, 7. Uh, those are metro area population data, by the way, not GLA-type population data. So the only league with respect to tall buildings which London wins by uh, 500 lengths is the number of tall buildings, the proportion of its tall buildings which are designed by what I call trophy architects. I'll explain in a minute. So nearly 25% of all the tall buildings in London are designed by trophy architects compared to zero in Brussels, <coughs> zero in Benidorm, 0.43%. Uh, in San Paolo. Or when I think of a sort of the home of modern architecture, about 3% in Chicago. So, you know, there's a lot of variation there. 
Uh, and you think that there would be some sort of general logic determining what, how many high-rise buildings a city had. Obviously, I would expect, as an urban economist, that that would be a function of the size of the city, the wealth of the city, and the price of land at the centre of the city, and, of course, its uh, transport system. However, it turns out that actually it's all a matter of regulation. Uh, and so I'm now going to draw on uh, uh, an idea uh, that goes back a long way in the economics literature. Anne Kroger wrote, wrote a very famous article in 1974, 100th anniversary of the American Economics Association. It was picked out as one of the 20 greatest articles ever published in the American Economic Review. Very simple idea. The idea that the imposing regulatory restrictions on quantity generates what she called uh, rents. Uh, and, and she was talking in terms of import controls in developing countries that pushes up the prices of imports so the licenses to import then become valuable things for which people <coughs> compete. And they compete by means of rent-seeking uh, behaviour. Now, the availability of these rents generates this rent-seeking behaviour, maybe lobbying, maybe networking, it's who you know, maybe public relations, maybe bribery, maybe the horse's head in the bed, maybe simply the Kalashnikov. They're all rent-seeking behaviour of one sort or another. But the point of the paper was that quantitative restrictions and the rents that they give rise to and the rent-seeking behaviour that the existence of those rents then generates are undis- sort of un- a certainly suboptimal in welfare terms because the rent-seeking behaviour you can show in economic terms is just a dead weight loss. It's a lot of activity that costs real resources that generates nothing but rents for particular actors who are lucky to succeed. Now, land use regulation in Britain employs quantitative restrictions on the supply of space. And it does that, of course, use by use because of the existence of use categories. And I've been researching this, as Ian implied, for quite some time. A couple of papers just bring, uh, point out the results of this Cheshire and Hilber one because they are relevant to this paper and indeed we actually propose the hypothesis that this paper sets out to test. So this is what we estimated in terms of the regulatory tax, we called it, which is the markup on the, of the price of space relative to the marginal costs of constructing an additional square metre of space. So if the price that you observe in the market is above the costs of generating the space, there must be something, which could be a monopoly, but if it's a competitive industry, and I think the development industry is reasonably competitive, uh, if it's a competitive industry, there must be something stopping people producing that extra space. So the difference between the marginal cost of construction and the price is, in a sense, a measure of the tax equivalent of the regulatory restriction on supply. And those are the values that uh, Christian and I estimated for a whole series of uh, office centres around the world. Um, The average for 1999 to 2005... the regulatory taxes and percentage of the marginal cost of construction, and you will immediately see that London is top of the list, top of the world list for at that stage, of course, uh, for uh, this that cost of regulatory restriction. 
so the three London centres, I mean, you can compare, for instance, Canary Wharf uh, with Paris La Défense, more than twice as high uh, a regulatory tax on space in even <coughs> Canary Wharf. Uh, or compare it to, say, Brussels, where you have an average of only 68% tax compared to the City of London and nearly 500% tax equivalent. Uh, and New York, almost nothing. Almost nothing because there's almost no restriction on the supply of office space in New York. So one of the things we found in that, uh, motivated that paper, was finding that the costs of building office space in New York were about twice those of building it in Birmingham, but the price of the cost of occupying office space in Birmingham was nearly 50% more than the cost of, of occupying space in Manhattan. Clearly, regulatory restrictions are on uh, in, uh, present. Notice that these rents are greatest in London and they're smallest in Brussels and New York. And just put that together with what I was just telling you about where trophy architect buildings are. They're very much in London and they're never not in Brussels at all. So there's clear evidence that there are rents being created of this sort as a result of regulatory restrictions in the London office market. And what I'm going to be talking about is a sort of more gentlemanly form of rent-seeking behaviour where you use a famous architect, who I'm calling a trophy architect, uh, in order to, so to speak, persuade the planning system to let you build more space on a given site, everything else equal. And this is actually an idea we threw out in that 2008 EJ paper, but we didn't then have the data to test. Now, and the reason why this may be possible, of course, is because of the British system of development control. Since we make decisions in our planning system not on the basis of rules, but on the basis of applying to the planning authority, whoever that may be, trying to get permission, and if they say no, then maybe going back with a new proposal, and if they say no again, maybe going back with another revised proposal, and then if that fails, you can then appeal, and if that fails, you can then appeal to the Secretary of State, and here you are, the Secretary of State, uh, John, later Lord Prescott, giving in his notice of approval of the Shamar, the highest building in Europe, allegedly, uh, this is only approved skyscrapers of exceptional design. For a building of this size to be acceptable, the quality of its design is critical. The proposed tower is of the highest architectural quality. How the hell John Prescott knew that, I don't know, although I'm going to make uh, some evidence which I think bears on it. So the, in the British system of planning, because every decision involves negotiation, bargaining, and, of course, delay... And the bigger that decision is, the bigger the proposed development is, the likelihood is the more that delay and those costs and that bargaining will turn out to be, you always have a possibility of gaming the system, of flexing the system. So the hypothesis that uh, we're testing here, this is a joint paper with Gerard Derricks, of course, uh, who, who, who did most of the work, I have to say, uh, uh, is that uh, we're going to be testing the hypothesis that trophy architects can acquire these rents. 
They may be able to acquire them for the developer who employs them. They may be able to acquire them for themselves or, and I think this is the most interesting possible contribution of the paper, it may be in a sense an estimate of the very substantial costs of compliance which our system imposes because of development control and the uncertainty, delay and risk that that process involves. So first off, we have to have an objective definition of trophy architect. And the definition we have is that at the time the planning application was made, that that architect had won one of the three major recognised lifetime achievement awards. Uh, the uh, Reba Award, the AAA Award, or the Pritzker Award. And it has to be before the application, because, of course, uh, our hypothesis very much is that John Prescott wouldn't recognise great architecture if it was put down in front of him, but he does know a famous architect when he meets one. Um, so this is a signalling issue that if you've won that award, you must be designing great buildings. It is work in progress, as I just said, this discussion paper is only just out. Uh, we've ex just expanded the well, last six months, we've been expanding the data set. So we've now got 43 trophy architect buildings in it. Uh, we started off, uh, and we've also been uh, trying to sort of uh, probe the causal interpretation that we put on the findings. We started with nearly 3,000 sales of offices in London between 1998 and 2011. <coughs> we end up with 515 distinct buildings and 625 sales, because of course some of the buildings uh, were sold more than once. Uh, and the data come from RC Analytics and the Estates Gazette's data databases. Uh, and the reason why you pruned it down so much because there was a lot of noise and inadequate data uh, in, in mistakes in the, uh, in the underlying data. That, so we had to spend an awful lot of time cleaning the data, and indeed Gerard went and visited every building uh, in, the, in the system. So what about the planning system in London? Because it's, you, know, you can't understand the economic effects of uh, planning unless you understand the institutional and legal structure of the system, because it works in different ways in different places. And <coughs> a particular feature of the British system that I think is significant in this instance is our use of development control rather than master planning or zoning. Uh, London has a few special features. Uh, we've got a two-tier system, so we have both boroughs and GLA making, uh, making decisions, so that adds a bit of uncertainty to the outcomes. Uh, for the, most of the period, the City of London and Docklands had particular arrangements for their own planning. Um, and planning has a very long history in uh, London. We could go back actually to the 18th century, but just going back to, I mean, for, for purposes of this paper, what's important is the London Council Act of 1890. Uh, there's good gossip about that. One bit of gossip is that Queen Victoria didn't like having the view of uh, the Houses of Parliament blocked by building Queen Anne's mansions, so she turned against high buildings, uh, but the actual uh, sort of uh, catalyst was fire brigade arguing that they couldn't safely protect buildings above 27 uh, metres. So there was an absolute prohibition on building uh, above 27 metres. So I remember when I was sort of an adolescent asking why London wasn't like New York in terms of its skyscrapers. 
I thought my skyline in New York was rather good looking, uh, and I remember being told that it was because of the subsoil in London's too soft to build skyscrapers. Bollocks. It's uh, simply a matter of regulation. We stopped it. Uh, and uh, so we didn't really have any, more, any tall buildings being constructed in London because we also had plot ratios set at 5 to 1. Uh, in 1951 uh, until uh, about in the 1960s, early 1960s, around about 1960. And then in the 1960s we introduced conservation uh, areas and we introduced uh, more listed buildings uh, and we also later on introduced height-protected areas and height-protected site corridors. Um, and of course in conservation areas you can't build above the existing roof lines you can't change the exterior appearance of listed buildings, so you can't build high there, and you can't build high uh, in these protected areas. So we've got uh, our buildings and the related data, because we've got lots of density measures to get sort of locational uh, variables like density of local employment as a sort of agglomeration uh, variable. So we've got end up with 546 postcodes, and these postcodes are uh, sectors are our uh, spatial units, um, and we define and map all those areas which are height protected, and we define as height protected anything in the conservation area at the time of the planning application, because of course conservation areas came in over time. So the relevant thing is whether it was a conservation area when the proposal was made. Uh, other height protected zones at the time of the planning application unless you know, uh, the actual site occupied by the building was already occupied by a tall building which gave sort of granddaddy rights to build taller uh, and our planning data is the uh, restrictiveness measured by the refusal rate for office proposals either the mean between 1990 and 2008 for the buildings models or the moving average for the price models to get a measure closer to the time of the transaction in question. So here's a, a, a map of our uh, observations, you might say. Uh, we are, I think, here. I think that's Lincoln's Inn Fields just there. That must be Regent's Park, Hyde Park. So you can see roughly in a big concentration of observations in the city and also in the West End. So that's where our uh, observations are. Now, where can you not build high? Well, you can't build high in any of those purple areas because they are conservation areas. So that's all height protected. Uh, you can't build high there because it's in the St. Paul's height policy area. Uh, and you can't build high here because that's in the monument views and setting area. Uh, and you can't build high here because that's in the Tower of London local setting area. And I think this is the, the most uh, significant one. You can't build high in any of those yellow areas either because they are protected vistas of St Paul. So you can see how difficult it is to find anywhere in London that you can actually build high. So, you know, that's prima... That's uh, exhibit A, shall we say, for the, for the prosecution. Uh, it really is not only rents to be got, but there's clearly controls on how high you can build. So about our data. So we, uh, we locate each building... And then for each building, we get a, quite a big range of um, local relevant variables. 
such as the density of conservation area around the building, of course, whether the building is in a height-protected area, uh, the density of <coughs> listed buildings around the building, the density of parks and gardens around the building in within 300 metres, whether the building actually fronts onto a park or garden, uh, and then for office-employing sectors, this is sort of trying to get at localised agglomeration economies, uh, we have the employment density within the surrounding 600 metres. Now, we tested the uh, zones within 100, you know, we don't know a priori what the uh, geographical extent of agglomeration or the relevant extent of agglomeration economies is in office employer sectors, so we tested everything between 100 metres and a kilometre, uh, and 600 kilometres works best. 600 metres works best. Um, uh, there's a, a US paper that has, uh, that has 500 metres, um, but I don't think they tested uh, a whole range of, um, of different possible distances. Um, there's obviously a sort of definitional degree of endogeneity in this measure because each building that's occupied adds to its own local employment density. Uh, but since, firstly, on average only about 1.2% of employment within these 600 buffered zones is within the building in question, we don't think it's very, it matters very much. And secondly, since we're not trying here to test the causal effects of agglomeration, although I think that it is sort of quite, um, quite sort of indicative and, and it, you know, it's, it causes you to think about the role of agglomeration, uh, we're not, but we're not here directly trying to test the sort of causal relationships of agglomeration, so the endogeneity, we'd argue, in an econometric sense, doesn't matter anyway. Uh, in fact, we are working on recalculating all these employment densities, removing employment within the building in question, which sort of is cleaner than we should have done in the first place. Then we have a lot of building-specific characteristics, the uh, year built, the year when the set transaction took place, the footprint of the building, uh, the, the size of the site, the number of floors both above and below ground in the building, its depreciation age measured as the time since it was either constructed or last had a major refurbishment, uh, whether it's occupied, whether it's in multi-tenants or single tenants, uh, the quality of the building as rated by the Estates Gazette, how many parking spaces the building has, etc. And then we have some various accessibility measures, for example, how far to a station, which turn out not to be significant, but that may, of course, be because they're collinear with the, with the measure of employment density. So, um, you know, again, it's not, not important for what we're actually doing, although it might be of interesting. Now, we have 43 buildings designed by these trophy architects, of which 58 uh, and 58 sales of them. And we have 36 uh, designed by modern trophy architects, that is, since 1956, when it, in principle, became possible to build a, tall, a building above about seven storeys, and then pre-modern, 1988 to 1955. And we have 15 modern trophy architect buildings which are built outside height-protected zones. So we're sort of skating on relatively thin statistical ice. We're identifying off a not very big sample, but it's all of these buildings that there are in London, as far as we can tell. 
So, first question is, can a trophy architect build bigger? So, for, uh, here we are, trophy architect buildings, yes. Uh, this is the uh, floor space in the building relative to the size of the site. Trophy architect buildings tend to be bigger if they're in a height protected area, and lo and behold, they tend to be less big. The more restrictive the local planning authority is, because we've got borough level measures of restrictiveness, then uh, that makes the building smaller and that's significant, um, etc. We've got 515 observations. However, the real effect is not that they're built by trophy architects, but as you can see from model two, it's interacting that without the building being outside a height protected area. It's only if the building is outside a height protected area that really the trophy architect effect works. You've got a big coefficient there, highly significant. Um, and the other things stay more or less the same. Um, and then here uh, we include employment densities and local employment density is highly significant and it turns out in most of these models to be pretty significant variable in increasing the size of the building but the trophy architect effect is still highly significant. Now remember I just told you I've got rather a small sample so just to test the robustness of those results we throw away the, the data for the three tallest buildings in London. Throw that away and you get the right hand column and you still get more or less the same results. Of course the trophy architect effect on building size is somewhat smaller, but it's still highly significant, and everything else stays pretty much the same. It seems to be a pretty robust uh, finding, despite the relatively small sample size of trophy architect buildings. So then the question is, you know, do trophy architects get more space in their buildings by building bigger, or, or you know, bigger floor plans, or by building taller? I won't show you the results for the uh, floor plan effect, but just to say it's not significant, the real effect is they get them not just taller, but enormously taller, another 19 floors on average, if it's designed by a trophy architect. Uh, even dropping the three tallest buildings, it's another 12 floors. So there's a huge vertical input, if you like, that the developer gets from employing a trophy architect. So what's that do? This is uh, an interesting question for people like my colleague Gabrielle, who's very interested in the uh, contribution of design to welfare. What does it do to the value per square meter of the building itself? The answer is it does absolutely nothing. Trophy architects' buildings are not more valuable per square meter in terms of the transactions prices that they get than buildings designed by ordinary architects. Uh, now that's a little bit um, that's a little bit interesting because there was a paper published in 2011 which suggested that if that famous architects' buildings did command uh, a premium per square meter, however their variable was rents. Our variable is capital values, and one of the things I'm going to show you in a, a little later is that trophy architect buildings are more difficult to let. They take a lot longer to let, and it takes longer to get them full. So we're using uh, the results that we're having here on capital values are probably consistent with the results on rents. Um, what about, however, the value that trophy architects contribute to the value of sites? Well, here uh, you can see you have a huge effect. And, of course, that effect is coming because they're getting a lot more lettable space onto the sites, so the value of the buildings is much higher. 
uh, outside a tightly protected area. That's a very strong, I've interpreted for you in a moment, a very strong and, and significant coefficient, and it's still strong and significant if you drop the three tallest buildings. And note that most of the buildings got a lot of controls and uh, building-specific uh, uh, characteristics in there, and area-specific, location-specific characteristics. They're in the discussion paper. There's not space here for you to hope have a chance of getting them. So um, most of the area controls and most of the building controls are pretty much as you'd expect. And note uh, that the employment density variable is pretty powerful in explaining the value of sites. Um, something that, two things that aren't valuable, which is possibly worth mentioning. Uh, one is um, uh, whether the building is in, is in a conservation zone. Uh, and another is uh, whether it's close to a station. That didn't, oh, sorry. Whether it's close to a station didn't, wasn't significant, but as I already said, that's probably because it's collinear with the employment density. But something else that wasn't significant, which in US studies is significant, is the number of parking spaces. Well, given the, uh, the congestion charge and the fact that London, uh, <coughs> London used, uh, used public transport to get to work, or bicycles in my case, then it's not so surprising that parking spaces are not uh, significant. Uh, but also note that the, uh, within the conservation area, it's, uh, it's, it's, got a, it's really, it's pretty, it's actually ne negative, but it's not significant. Uh, and listed is negative, but not significant. There's absolutely no evidence that there's a real contribution of design to commercial value. But remember, this is commercial value, not sort of social or tourist value of the buildings. So what are trophy architects bringing uh, by design? Uh, they can get these much taller buildings, uh, and the tighter the local planning restrictiveness is, uh, then whilst the buildings tend to be smaller, uh, I think it was in the previous uh, table, but also the unit price is higher, you know, more restrictive local authorities, the supply space is even more constrained, so the price of space is even higher. Uh, the negative effect uh, of trophy architects on average on uh, building prices is because of the uh, the pre-modern, and it's probably because uh, of the greater likelihood that those are A, old and can't be refurbished to modern standards so easily, and B, they are more likely to be sort of frozen because you can't change them, so you don't, you're foregoing the option demand of future redevelopment. But the trophy architect adds a lot of value uh, to a site outside a height-protected height area, and the results stand up to dropping the tallest buildings. So what then do they add? What, how much do they add? To the value of sites in sort of percentage terms. They get more space, but there's no premium per square meter. But from our third specification, that adds about 130% to a characteristics constant mean representative site in the city of London. 130% more expensive because of all that extra space they're getting. If, of course, it's outside a high protected area. But of course, Employing a trophy architect costs money, and not just their fees, uh, and, then, and the construction costs, and the longer period to, to rent building out, but I think this is much more important in terms of more delays and uncertainty in getting through the planning system. So the question is, are, is employing trophy architects, so to speak, worth it? So we managed to get from Gardner and Theobald uh, some quite nice uh, buildings cost data. 
this is how construction costs rise with the number of floors. Rise very rapidly going from sort of about 15 floors up to about uh, 25 floors, but rise quite gently thereafter. And then, of course, as your building gets bigger, you get less lettable space because you have to have more circulation space and lifts and, and uh, escapes the staircases, etc. So you lose space as you get taller relative to the floor plan. Um, so that's how Gardner and Theobald uh, estimate those two relationships. And then we they were very kind and they gave us uh, estimated costs for buildings of different heights by standard architects, a cheap trophy architect, and an expensive trophy architect. Expensive trophy architects, naming their names, charge more. And they probably have high, you know, sort of more demanding uh, construction specifications as well. So assuming a sample means City of London site outside a height-protected area, and that this has got all the, uh, the mean uh, values for all buildings in the City of London, then the sample mean uh, height would be eight floors, and this is designed by a trophy architects, in which case it will be 27 floors. And we can use the estimates on the price per square metre of space, then to construct hedonic price series, and estimate the value of that space over time, assuming that costs were fixed at 2012 levels arbitrary, but that's what we've done. But remember, of course, this is a partial equilibrium analysis because if there were no restrictions, buildings would generally be a lot higher and the price of space would be a lot lower, so a lot of what I'm talking about would have to be significantly altered. But there wouldn't be any rent-seeking behaviour for a start. Um, so, so this is what happens then uh, for a 27 top one greyish blue the sales price of uh, a, an expensive trophy architect building as I've just described those are your costs arising over time and no, I mean this is it really is mind-boggling maybe no. what is the profit maximising equilibrium height of a building built by a cheap regular architect in central London is 90 floors Trophy architects are more expensive, so their profit-maximising heights are 84 floors. And as I remember, the tallest building in London is the Shard, which is 74 floors. But partial equilibrium, emphasise that again, if we didn't have restrictions on space, those values would be extremely different. But, of course, in a sense, we are assuming that permission, getting permission is a certainty that you know you're going to get permission before you ask. Whereas the reality of development is that you're in engaging in a lot of costs now, you're assembling sites, you're chatting to people, <coughs> I don't know, some of us know more about the development process than I do, uh, and then you're employing architects and you're planning consultants and you're planning lawyers, and then you're, so you're getting a lot of investment, then you're engaging in the construction process if you're, if you're successful in getting permission, so that's enough. And then, right out after all that period, you're letting out the building or you're selling the building and you're making money. So it's always a question of costs now versus expected future returns. And as sort of Finance 101 would tell you, the more risk and uncertainty is associated with an investment decision, the higher the rate of return will have to be. 
So if you inject uncertainty into your decision-making process by trying to gain the system and get 27 stories instead of 8 on average, then you're taking on a lot of extra risk and you will expect to justify that risk a much higher return. So the problem is, how do we interpret these massive rents that we are estimating are available? So for an eight-floor standard architect building, uh, you'd have a sort of site value of 50... This is your book, your representative site in the city of London outside the height protected area. You'd have 56 million, 27-floor expensive uh, trophy architect. You'd have 129 million implying that there are rents of 73 million pounds uh, strewn about the streets of London. But most economists, and I'm, I'm one of them, don't actually believe that there are many £50 notes lying around that haven't been picked up. So if you can always make these huge rents by employing a trophy architect, why doesn't everybody do it? Only 25% of the buildings are designed by trophy architects. Well, there are at least two extra sources of cost. One is the extra cost of negotiating your way through the process of development control, and the other is the higher expected rate of returns required to justify the extra risk and uncertainty that's involved in maybe going right up to the Secretary of State on three or four appeals, and even then you may get rejected. So another way of looking at it, which I rather like, is that we're actually getting a glimpse into this sort of the dark matter of compliance costs. Because one of the things that we suspect, the planning, our planning system, is very much a British planning system thing, one thing that we suspect it does is impose a lot of costs on the system through compliance, including things like Section 106 agreements and now SIL as well, but this uncertainty and risk that's injected into the decision-making process. And no one has ever got a satisfactory uh, estimate of what those costs are, and I think actually that this is telling a credible story about what those costs might possibly be, and essentially those rents which people are seeking... If, it, if development is a reasonably competitive process, Mike may challenge that, of course, uh, are in some sense a measure of these compliance costs. So, you know, there are a lot of compliance costs. If you're building a tall building, there are a lot of additional assessments that you need. You need to have air traffic assessment, you need to be assessed for the impact on TV and radio signals, environmental assessments, London views management, those are those high protected high food corridors that are there. You have to also go through a whole load of additional agencies. There they all are. The surveyor of the fabric of St. Paul's Cathedral, I particularly like, but it's also through all uh, local planning authorities that might think that their views will be impaired. Um, And that's what's, I believe, going on at the moment. There's a standoff going on between Westminster and, is it the Southern... Lambeth, is it, that's wanting to build a tall block of uh, flats and, and Westminster are claiming that this is going to block their view of something. Um, anyway. <coughs> so, so you do have a lot of sort of identifiable extra costs. Uh, but we then also got a small sample because it's incredibly labour-intensive. We got a small sample of what you might call the sort of 
planning histories of buildings in the city of London. Half that sample are, are standard-sized buildings and half are trophy architect, tall buildings. Now, you know, you, these are not statistically valid, but they're pretty consistent. Uh, we found that there was an extra six to 18 months involved with, going, uh, with building, trying to build tall in the planning process. Uh, and that there was a much greater likelihood, I think it's uh, two-thirds greater likelihood of having to appeal to the Secretary of State. Uh, but the other thing was that we found there's a much slower rate of uh, letting out of trophy architect uh, buildings. They were more difficult to let out. Uh, so full lets were up to uh, three years longer to get than for standard buildings. So that's going to reduce your revenue flows uh, and increase the, the uh, the rate of return you require. So we're interpreting these results as evidence that, you know, trophy architects are a form of rent-seeking uh, device within our planning system, but we're only observing a correlation. I think that we've got, uh, you know, a fairly uh, persuasive circumstantial evidence, but we haven't got a clear, uh, a clear econometric identification of causation. So are there other possible uh, explanations of what we find? Uh, two have been suggested, uh, kindly, by colleagues. Um, one is by uh, Steve Gibbons that only trophy architects have the necessary technical expertise to build really tall buildings. Uh, and the other is that big companies, this is Hans Costa, big companies who want a landmark building build tall and they also employ trophy architects. That, that I find they're sort of intrinsically less implausible uh, story. Well, first of all, there's absolutely no evidence that only trophy architects can build tall. We find no examples of trophy architect buildings in the city with the highest representation of tall buildings in the world. Benidorm, almost none, and many of the others, even in Chicago, less than 3% of trophy architect. So clearly you don't have to be a trophy architect to have the technical expertise to build a tall building. So that's not a reason for employing a trophy architect. We also look as carefully as we can at uh, <coughs> the relationship between employing a trophy architect and the building being a bespoke building, being occupied by a single company that's making a sort of <coughs> landmark statement. And again, we actually find, I mean, that's not quite as clear-cut but we find no real supporting evidence for that. There's no uh, statistical tendency for these trophy architect buildings to be occupied by single companies or to be sort of spoke buildings designed and constructed for a single occupier. So we can't find alternative explanations. Uh, we can't find evidence supporting alternative explanations. So conclusions. We've got very strong evidence that... Uh, Iconic design is a form of rent-seeking, indeed successful rent acquisition behaviour, uh, and there appear to be <coughs> very large rents indeed available in London, 130% uplift in site values for a representative city site. But it, that estimate ignores the costs of delays the additional legal fees, the planning cost of planning appeals, appeals, and of course the risk and uncertainty associated with gaming the system. Uh, there's very modest evidence indeed, I mean really very modest evidence, 
of any external benefit associated with iconic architecture, at least in terms of commercial transactions in real estate. We are not looking at tourists or residents' willingness to pay for iconic, uh, for the presence of iconic buildings. And there is some positive evidence, some positive evidence on that. Certainly there's no premium paid in the market for trophy architect design buildings. Uh, and since, you know, we know that rent-seeking is a deadweight loss in welfare terms, unless it's offset by a social gain, and so is, of course, rent acquisition, it looks very much as if there's a serious deadweight loss involved in this process. However, looking at it through the other end of the telescope, uh, and assuming that there are none of these £50 notes lying around on the pavement ready to be picked up, then what we have is a handle on these compliance costs. So it's a measure of another economic cost associated with running the very tight regulatory control of the supplier space that we do in Britain, and particularly doing it via a process of development control rather than via a master planning or rules-based uh, system of planning. So, you know, the note that the profit-maximising building height uh, of it would be 84 floors, uh, and that exceeds even Trophy Architect's average achievements of 27 floors. Um, so these are, I think, uh, a deadweight loss involved, associated with this whole process, and the fact that 25% of our buildings in London, tall buildings in London, are designed by... Uh, trophy architects compared to about 3% in Chicago or 5% in New York is a signal. It's telling us that. Um, and even if there are uh, some consumption benefits associated with iconic design of buildings, it's still very clear Kruger is a, is, a, is a sort of person, a clear uh, support for that, it's very clearly an extremely inefficient method of increasing the architectural quality of uh, the cityscape, even if that's a desirable social uh, end. There, I saw. Thank you very much. Can we ask